0: Hello lovely wine lovers. So today's episode is all about Central Otago, so this incredible region, the most southern wine region in the world. You're going to learn all about the terroir and the geography there, and I'm chatting with a very special winemaker, Paul Peugeot. He has many experiences from working so many vintages around the world, so you're going to learn all about his journey and those wine regions as we speak. We're going to look at different vintage variations, how that affects the grapes, his winemaking techniques, what he learnt on his journeys and the other very famous winemakers that he has worked with. So instead of me talking and giving a bit of an educational aspect myself, I'm just going to go straight over to Paul, who will do all the work for me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm so excited to talk to you and ask you all these amazing winemaking questions. So thanks for joining.
1: Magic. Great to be here.
0: It is magic, isn't it? And the fact is (laughs) that as we were just talking before I pressed the record button, you are 12 hours ahead. So I've already found it just exciting and crazy and weird that here I am at just after eight o'clock in the morning about to sip some wine but you're getting ready for bed pretty got your slippers wow. on and a dressing gown no
1: yeah well I've had dinner and, <laughs> and settling down with a glass of wine for a chance great
0: actually it is a nice time for you to sit down for, an, for a glass of wine but then again my palate is going to be more awake than yours this is the best time to taste first thing in the morning. this is true I say that I've drunk some coffee do you think I've tarnished your wines already <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I'll be listening for your tasting comments
0: yeah but like um it's, it's like mocha the, the white <laughs> wine is really mocha and coffee like I think okay it's so for anybody who doesn't know who you are Paul Bajour actually where does the last name come from by the way
1: well my dad was French but mm. he got lost in New Zealand um, lost as you do <laughs> and met, met my mother and convinced her to go back to France with him ah. uh, just despite not having any English and <laughs> they got married in France and then moved back to New Zealand just before I was born
0: Did he learn some English?
1: <laughs> he, he learnt it on the job and unfortunately Amazing. for his English, his job was, he was a boilermaker okay. So it was a fairly floral dialect um, of New Zealand English that he was picking up mm. um, A lot of interesting adjectives around the edges <laughs>
0: Well, either way, he got your mother. Here you are. You obviously speak fluent French then.
1: Uh, yes, with a shocking New Zealand accent.
0: Oh, if only I could speak French and then I could actually like, pick it apart, but I, I can't. So you're safe. So tell me okay, you have done amazing winemaking trips all over the world, haven't you? And spent a decent amount of time in France, which now, of course, makes sense why if you gravitated there. It was obviously easier with your beautiful New Zealand French. <laughs> Can you tell us about your amazing wine journey around the world before coming back to New Zealand because I think it's pretty intense. It's kind of mega.
1: Sure. I studied in New Zealand. Um mm-hmm. well, I did like a lot of people I did a few degrees in unrelated areas just to test <laughs> out the uni- the university system and uh, um of course. Fi- f- And finally, found my passion in viticulture and enology. Mm -hmm. So went and studied those at Lincoln University, which is just outside of Christchurch. Okay. And it's interesting when you do find your passion uh, in terms of study, you go from basically bumming through university (laughs) on straight sort of C grades Uh to sort of topping your your courses uh, because it's fun and it's interesting. And you really enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So found my passion and then worked in Marlborough initially for a Saracen estate um, in the the vineyard and followed the grapes through into the cellar. Uh, At the time, they were one of the very few organic producers, and making the sorts of wines that I was really interested in learning more about, which was traditional <laughs> techniques like wild fermentation, which was a lot less common uh, in the late 90s than it is now. For sure. Well, New uh, Zealand
0: winemaking, the industry, really hasn't... It's it's actually very, very young, isn't it? I'd say, what was it, 1970s? Is that when kind of Sauvignon Blanc came to Marlborough? Um, Am yeah, I right, 1970s? I mean,
1: I mean, people people were making kind of all sorts, but in terms of actual kind of fine wine, mm-hmm. um, the really big development was through the 80s and mm. and and into the 90s. So it's really in the 80s that when people started getting serious about premium wine, whether it was in Martinborough were in Marlborough mm-hmm. and in Hawke's Bay and so on. Before that, you know, because of government regulation, there was a lot of fortified wine and, yeah, oh, really? it, was, okay. it was yeah, it was a lot less exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of big jars of sherry, you know.
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you've, you've come a long way since then.
1: Exactly. Um, <laughs> but I guess back to Marlborough, so I was there for a year and, and that was a really formative experience for me, seeing... Following the fruit and seeing how everything that I'd picked up in the vineyard matched the end result of the wines. The blocks of grapes that were in lovely balance and very healthy, Mm -hmm. where the yield was really good and the fruit had loads of flavor. They were always the best wines. So you realize very quickly there's kind of no shortcut. Mm -hmm. And Saracen kindly gave me the winter sort of off to go and do the Northern Hemisphere harvest season.
0: Okay. And
1: I was very keen to get to France and I guess sort of fill in the blanks around uh, old world and more traditional winemaking. And I was also pretty keen, so I, I came up with a, a stupid idea to try and do five vintages in 12 months. How stupid.
0: Uh, <laughs> that is actually pretty remarkable though. Yeah, five vintages um, in 12 months. Yeah, it's,
1: a, it's, a, it's sort of like a competition of, you know, how many tanks and barrels do you want to clean in a year, you know? How, not how many, as
0: a, yeah, ha, it's not as uh, romantic as people might think. Yeah,
1: sort of how many 90-hour weeks do you want to work? So we did the vintage in the year 2000 in Marlborough in March and April. Mm-hmm. That winter I went to France and kind of followed the sun. So I did vintage in the Languedoc-Roussillon in the south because they kick off in August. Okay. And and did sort of a month month or so there, and then went up to Sancerre where I had a connection with the bourgeois family in Chavignol, okay, uh, yeah. who who have a domain in in Malbury now, and that's how I uh, met them. Okay. Yeah, called Clo Henri. And uh, of course, you know, I've had the
0: Clo Henri. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I would met them when they were looking for land, and so worked with them, and their their harvest is quite compressed because. Uh, geographically it's a small area but also you're it's only Sauvignon and uh, Pinot so it all comes Mm -hmm. in pretty quickly and then the then I went to Alsace and they start in October and and my plan was then to do the Hunter Valley in Australia on the way home in January February before coming back to Saracen so making it five harvests in, Mm -hmm. in 12 months did you come back I didn't. I got stuck in El- Alsace. <laughs> I, got, I, got I was going to say, because that's
0: not the story <laughs> I, I remember. Now, you ended up working for a fantastic winery in Alsace. Now, do you pronounce them Kunspas? Am I pronouncing yeah, it correctly? Yeah, Kunspas. That's, yeah. that's that's the one. Now, you might not big yourself up, which is why I'm going to say this part, because as we've already said, a Kiwi looks at their shoes when they get a compliment. So, from the literature <laughs> that I read, you were not only the first ever permanent foreign winemaker, but since they started in like the 1700s they had never had a winemaker that was not part of the family and you just came on in there announced yourself and said hey guys I'm taking over I'm taking over this this uh, roller coaster didn't you basically um
1: yeah <laughs> not quite not, not quite um In my head, you know, I was so enamored with the wines of Alsace. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was determined to get there to work harvest. And I was Mm -hmm. just so happy that I'd managed to get into this famous domain. Mm -hmm. And I just thought I was there for harvest. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that. The winemaker was leaving and that they, they'd they actually been looking for a while for a winemaker. No one mm-hmm. told me anything. I just thought I was there to, you know, clean tanks and, you know. Um, you know stay around some wine. Exactly. Load the press and things like that. Uh-huh. And so it was really at the very end of Vintage where I remember the director saying, oh, make sure you have leave some time for us to have a chat before you, you make too many plans. And I was like, oh, okay, I wonder what he's on about. Uh-huh. And so it turned out that they, you know, they offered me the head winemaking position. Well, basically in charge of production. So responsible for the vineyards as well.
0: Um, oh, that, well, that's it in France as well. You're vinerons. You don't just yeah. make wine. You take care of the vines. And that must have been so amazing working with, they have so many Grand Cru sites in Alsace. Did you prefer to make the Rieslings or the Pinot Gris? Or just it was equal? Or what was oh, the most exciting just, thing about?
1: Just the, just the whole the whole lot. Everything. Um, yeah. Like Alsace is... For a winemaker, Alsace really is the ultimate sort of Disneyland theme park of winemaking where (laughs) you have, you know, 50, I think 51 now, Grand Cru, all on different soil types. Where I was working had holdings and half a dozen. You're dealing with old vines planted before the war. Um, You've got 12 different grape varieties uh, you're making wine in 200-year-old foudre that you've got to seal the door with a sort of, a sort of like a paraffin wax. Oh my and gosh, wow. So the the whole thing is just this absolutely amazing kaleidoscope of varieties, wine making techniques and different terroir and amazing how, and it really teaches you how different, the difference that different so- soils and sites make to, to finished wine. Um, Amazing, yeah. Like an example of that was below the village, Useren Chateau, where Kunzbar are. Uh, okay. There's two, there's two grand crews sitting. The Useren Le Chateau is the highest village on the route de Var, and so the vineyards mm-hmm. lie sort of below it. And as you drive down to the next village to the valley floor, there's a grand crew on either side of the road, and so we had great uh, Riesling in both. And we always picked them on the same day, the same elevation. You could see one block from the other. Mm-hmm. And they were just the most opposite wines you can imagine. Just literally um,
0: one side of the road compared oh, to the other. How interesting. Like
1: one was floral, and Fersigberger means hill of the peach trees in Alsatian dialect. Oh, wow. so, and and would ha- often have that sort of blossom and, and peach mm-hmm. aroma. And the other side, the iceberg, which means Hill of the Oak Trees, because there used to be an oak forest there, mm-hmm. was very mineral, very steely, and basically takes, you know, five to seven years before it'll even start to open up. And, you know, just amazing uh, to see how those sorts of um, famous sites translate into wine. like wouldn't experience coming from, from New Zealand
0: amazing i'm going to pause that story because you've been able to obviously bring back all this knowledge to new zealand and i have the pinot gris in my hand because yeah we should break things up with a little bit of drinking have you got the same <laughs> have you got the same wine as me have you got the pinot gris with you
1: i do i do do
0: you have the 2018 or did you decide to throw me off and bring a different vintage for yourself <laughs>
1: no 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 i've got the 18 as well
0: um. yay um so I love this nose. For me, this wine is so textural. It is beautifully perfumed and aromatic, exactly as I would expect a Pinot Gris to be, which I just want to point out for anyone listening. Pinot Gris typically is the (laughs) flavoursome style of Pinot Gris, whereas when you see Pinot Grigio, typically from Italy, it may be picked a lot uh, earlier and it's much just greener. They're very, very different. And this is just sublime. So how do you make your white wines? How do you make your Pinot Gris? I'm going to have a little sip now whilst you tell me.
1: (laughs) Well, I think... The key to, to Pinot Gris for, for us, our approach, and I think what really creates the biggest points of difference is really in the viticulture. So mm-hmm. we farm the grapes with a very low yield and so we have a lot of concentration of flavour in the fruit. And we're really fortunate in central Otago that we're in a climate where Pinot Gris needs a long, slow ripening process to get aromatic mm. flavours into the grapes. If you pick it in a hot climate early, um, it doesn't have time to develop any flavor and so we have a climate here in central otago where you can ripen the grapes into an aromatic spectrum but you hold acidity because our nights are really cool mm. um, you have really inter-
0: long i mean you have really long summers don't you i mean it's a, this is the only continental climate wine region in new zealand isn't it
1: yeah, well, se- semi-continental because Sammy, you know, sorry. we we like to think we <laughs> we like to think we're a continent, but we're really only an island or two. But where Central Otago is, we're surrounded by big mountains, so we're cut off from the maritime influence. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the uh, New Zealand's other wine-growing regions are maritime climates, and so our summers, because of the latitude, we're one of the southernmost uh, areas growing wine in the world.
0: 45 um, degrees yeah, for anyone.
1: 40, 45. So we're the same as Patagonia and Chile.
0: I have mentioned on other podcasts in Patagonia the most southern vineyard in the world, and the is in Argentina, but you are the sure. most southern commercial winemaking region because ultimately you have that one winery in Patagonia, whereas as a region you are the most southern commercial wine region,
1: right?
0: <laughs> take yeah. it, take it. Yeah, Ignore
1: we're, Patagonia. We're, we're, we'll <laughs> take it. There's not a lot of competition in, in the southern region. Really. Really? Because on the 45th parallel, there's basically us, Patagonia, and a bunch of whales. So you know, like there's essentially Aww. just ocean. <laughs>
0: But let's talk about Central Otago just for a second, because it, everybody who hasn't looked online should Google it or should go and visit if, if you can. These are like incredible snow-capped mountains everywhere and all these beautiful panoramics and loads of valleys and glacial lakes. And it's just stunning. It's an amazing wine region that's pretty extreme.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's very small. There's only 2,000 hectares of grapes in Central Otago in six different sub-regions. Yes. Um, so for scale, there's there's many, many wineries around the world with more grapes than that themselves. Mm-hmm. I guess what's interesting about Central Otago, there's a tendency sometimes to think of New World wine regions as being one thing. So you mm-hmm. think of different regions in South Australia or as in New Zealand, you think of them as sort of, you have a sort of formed idea that the region's one thing, but... In central Otago, there's 2,000 metre mountains between two of our sub-regions, you know, like... Wow. they, yeah, they... That, that makes a difference.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Just a little bit. So
1: the climate's not between the areas is really distinct and different each season. So it's not a region, I think, that you want to sort of pigeonhole as one style or one thing, because each site's going to be so different.
0: And I would say your site, you have two vineyards. They're both in Bendigo subregion. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, they're both in Bendigo on sort of Bendigo. Oh, Bendigo. Na- <laughs> <laughs> Bendig. yeah. Bendigo,
0: everyone. Repeat after me, Bendigo, yep.
1: The names in central Otago are thanks to some pretty unimaginative gold miners. Yes, well, kept, that is who, what it
0: was built in, wasn't it? The yeah, who
1: kept recycling the same names that, <laughs> from previous gold rushes that they'd been to in other countries. So there's a oh, Bendigo and a Bannockburn in Australia, and then those names are recycled original. in New Zealand. Uh, to, <laughs> but this okay,
0: so Bendigo is is actually probably one of the the more warmer sub-regions with say Bannockburn as you said, and and Cromwell Basin. They're the the warmer ones.
1: Sure, yeah, no, I'll no, go with that's that. that's right. Of course, <laughs> you have to be a little careful because you know, warm for Central Otago doesn't mean warm like I don't know the Barossa or something mm-hmm. like. Yeah. you know you're in a properly marginal region so yes. an example would be two weeks ago the vines have started growing here at spring and mm-hmm. so we've had bud burst mm-hmm. and two weeks ago the entire region got covered in snow so um that must have been a bit tough it, yeah <laughs> and so just tough uh, <laughs> a
0: challenge
1: yeah, so it didn't matter if you were in the nominally warmest subregion or the nominally cool, <laughs> cooler subregion. You like were still snowed, stuffed. It, yeah, it snowed everywhere. So you really are in a marginal climate. And it's, mm. I think, um, on the fringes where you see with cool climate uh, grape varieties the best expressions. You know, when you think about Burgundy and Pinot Noir, it's mm-hmm. a marginal climate. You know, they have very difficult seasons and face a lot of the same challenges that we do. And likewise likewise in Alsace, to get an aromatic expression of Pinot Gris, it needs to be a cool climate again, sort of on the edge of, of getting it ripe so that you've got acidity and you've got that freshness in the wine and you're getting that concentration and aromatic expression.
0: I'm getting all that in this glass right now. I love it. I actually don't know. It's a shame it's a shame I haven't got the Riesling because Riesling was always my favorite before, but that was back in the past when we first met and I think that's we're going back like 7 years. So who knows. Um but this for me. And I, and for every, anyone who's wondering this is dry. This is the, there isn't um I have, I, how much residual sugar would be be in this?
1: Um it depends on the year because all the fuments are wild. The wild ferment. Uh, the indigenous yeast very rarely go to zero grams of sugar Mm -hmm. they're not selected like uh, cultured yeast commercial Mm -hmm. yeast are so there's typically between sort of five to ten grams residual sugar and which helps which helps to balance the the naturally high acidity that we have
0: i would not have even guessed that i would have been saying two or three just because yeah the acidity is fantastic but for me it's about i love this peachy apricotty kind of the texture, the silkiness on the palate is very round. Do you do any lees stirring?
1: Um, no, or no lees stirring. On on, t- is it left on the lees? It is for a long time. So Okay,
0: so that's where it's kind of maybe just adding yeah. that little texture. Um,
1: so basically I'm, I make the Pinot Gris the same way that I made the wines in Alsace. So they're whole bunch pressed and there's no skin contact. They're all uh, wild ferment in old barrels. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. Unfortunately, in New Zealand, it's really hard to find two hundred year old Foudre like you have in Alsace. Like they just mm-hmm. don't exist here. Um, <laughs> but but yeah. Anyway, I we do what we can. So we've got a bunch of smaller old oak barrels. So completely mm-hmm. neutral barrels. Yeah. Some of our barrels are over twenty years old and so barrels are a really nice environment for indigenous use wild fermentation Mm -hmm. and then ferment takes place pretty slowly our ferments are normally going for three to four months oh wow So a a very long slow ferment and so a lot of the wines from That vintage are already released by the time hours of only just finished fermentation.
0: Absolutely, that's a Um, very long fermentation. What do you feel that does? Intensify, homogenize? It just brings out, it lifts out the aromatics more by doing a much longer fermentation?
1: Yeah, I think wild yeast will always be uh, less uh, vigorous and, and slower to ferment than commercial yeast. And the difference being that with a commercial yeast, you have one strain Mm -hmm. that you throw in your wine and off it goes. Whereas with wild yeast, you've got all of the different species of yeast that are coming in with the grapes. And so it's almost like a kind of crazy relay race with all sorts of different strains adding their little piece to the wine Mm -hmm. and they're always much slower our autumns get cold quite quickly as well so the temperatures aren't that warm and I just I think you get a lot of depth and complexity from that you definitely get more texture Mm -hmm. and then once ferment's finished we just leave it we don't rack the wines we leave them on all of the gross lees we call it until just before the next harvest and we only bottle just before uh, the next vintage so the wines have had 10 months on lees with no stirring uh, we're not trying to impact the flavour profile of the wine like you might do with a Chardonnay, but it does help give the wines that weight, depth of flavour, those layers and the complexity.
0: I love this. Obviously, I get more the apricots on the palate, but the nose is it's just so filled. There's even, there's apple, there's lemon peel, there's honeysuckle, it's very floral, it's a bit spicy, even like a bit of, even like ginger or, or cinnamon or something. It's, it's gorgeous. So what... It, Do you agree with that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. You you get a lot of spices um, in that wine, like every year, depending on vintage. There's normally a sort of an interesting little continuum of pear flavors where mm. in two, mm-hmm. 2018, which is a warmer year, it's more in the sort of nashi pears, quite crunchy, mm-hmm. whereas it can be in really sort of white, ripe Poire William flavors in other seasons. Mm. Yeah, I was always fascinated by the wines of Alsace and my mission going to Alsace was to work out why those wines have that amazing texture. When you, mm-hmm. when you blind taste Alsace aromatics against the new world, the texture always jumps out at you. And what I realized when I got there was that no one bottles their wines three months after the harvest like we're so mm. fond of doing it's in the new time. world. It's, it's about, about time. It's about, they leave them in the Foudra on leaves, they bottle them before the next harvest, and part of that's keeping the Foudra full because you don't want them drying out and, and starting to leak. But there is a trade-off. you need to build some bottle age into those wines because when they've had that long lease contact, you get amazing texture, but the wines take more time to open up. So mm-hmm. your classic new world wine making where it's fast, temperature controlled, stainless, you know bottled very quickly, those wines will be really overtly aromatic, you know, almost from the word go. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this longer a little shyer uh, these
0: are shyer longer wines. approach
1: yeah it takes time to open up the, you've got to the tease them out side, <laughs> yeah well and the plus side <laughs> is they age incredibly well they open up mm-hmm. and they get they get more expressive and more fruity as they age rather than starting off with everything and fading
0: yeah okay But well, I've had a look in the UK you can get this from Venom I've mentioned them a few times they actually have so many wines that I'm trying so they're a great source for, for amazing wine and they're selling this for 22 pound a bottle definitely worth it and I would so have this with like Thai fish cakes or something like mushroom on toast or just any kind of spicy not not overly spicy not at all but just kind of that the kind of lighter fresher curries Thai Indian these kind of dishes I think you know it Pairs perfectly with any of these fusion dishes It's got a I think Pinot Gris And especially the way you've made this with the texture And the acidity It has so much versatility
1: Yeah it's an amazing food wine And this style of Pinot Gris Absolutely Because you have the weight and depth of, of say mm-hmm. Chardonnay But without those strong dominating flavours That are going to jump all over the food Like New Oak Or really strong malolactic sure. characters And so But it can stand up to spice and strong flavours like, like you say with Thai, it's, it works really well with coriander, mm. ginger, Yum. bit of chili, and so on. Mm. Um, it makes I it had very versatile.
0: <laughs> Except obviously I'm not going to have Thai food for breakfast, but still you're making me hungry. Um, and also, if anyone doesn't believe how yummy it is, from either Paul's opinion, I mean this is this is in the fat. Well, it was. Let's. I mean, who knows now what's going on with the restaurant situation? But this was in the Fat Duck. If anyone doesn't know, three Michelin star restaurant in England. So, you know, they know their stuff. I think that's a top recognition for how good this wine is. No?
1: Yeah, that was that was a really fun visit and amazing to have the wine on the dig menu at the Fat Duck for a season. It was really special.
0: There you go, profits rock tick if they don't believe me that your winery is amazing I mean there you go but can we go back to the story now so you're in Alsace you're making these superb wines learning everything about Alsace you were there for about three years right
1: yeah that's right
0: and then you said you know what guys I've got more to do I've got more to learn I've, got to, I've, I've given you the best I can I've got to go now is that what happened
1: well <laughs> I guess you know the short versions that I sort of chased Pinot Noir and aromatic whites cool climate whites around the world and ended up back in New Zealand because from Alsace I went to a small organic producer in Oregon called Lemonson Vineyards Mm -hmm. and spent a couple of years there basically making not the amazing 12 varietal set that you get in Alsace but focusing on similar sort of uh, varieties so pinot uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Gris, Riesling mm-hmm. and a, an interesting place to work it very a lot of similarities to central Otago in terms of at the time the size it's a little bigger now you know a really close knit winemaking community and that amazing focus and drive for cool climate Pinot Noir.
0: So do you think Pinot Noir for you has been what? what attracts you to cool climate varieties? You've obviously led yourself down that path rather than Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot and Shiraz, and you know. So, what is it for you?
1: I think it's it's a lot of things. It, it seemed to me quite early on that the wines that were the most engaging to me and really spoke to me, they were both from marginal climates. So mm-hmm. where life was was pretty tough, and you know there was no guarantee of success, mm-hmm. and they were these cool climate. Uh, grape varieties, and I guess my first love was viticulture. So I really love the the farming and the growing of the grapes. Yeah. And when you're dealing with cool climate varieties, you know, in, in places like Central Otago, the farming is everything. Like you're on the line, and that's where you win and lose. Uh, mm-hmm. Same in Alsace and Burgundy and Oregon and in Central Otago. If you get it wrong in the vineyard, you, you're not making a a viable or a high quality wine and so I, I really enjoy that challenge mm-hmm. and the wines seem to speak of it too, there's just so much depth, uh, complexity and interest in the wines from those climates, you know, even like you were talking, you know, about Cabernet, but when you think of, you know, uh, the wines of Bordeaux, like for Cabernet and Merlot and Cabernet Franc and so on, um, that's actually a marginal climate. So oh, again, yes, they have they have
0: their all their own problems, don't they?
1: Yeah. So again, you're on the fringes, and you could say the same for the for the Northern Rhone for Syrah. So, in my case, I really gravitated towards a cool climate where. I liked the, the challenge and you know, I really enjoy everything you'll do is trying to push the grapes towards getting ripe. You're not in a climate where it's really, really hot and you're mm-hmm. trying to preserve acidity or pull back ripening. You know, all your efforts are in a really positive direction of making yeah. sure your yields are low. You know, you're keeping the vines healthy and disease free you know that you're picking them at the right time that you're watching the weather and you it's really grounding you you're completely responsive to what these cool climates are throwing at you that you can't go in you can't go into a place like central otago with a game plan at the start of the season because it will be blown out of the water straight away
0: <laughs> i think that i love hearing you say that because i think for people listening people often you know they take a glass of wine mm, this is delicious and they drink it and it's all good very often we forget to like look into that glass smell it and taste it and really think like wow what happened in that year what What did the winemaker have to do to make it? There's so many decisions, gambling (laughs) chance, you know, winemaking techniques. There's so much that goes into a glass of wine. And we often forget how difficult it can be, how exciting, how...
1: Oh, absolutely. And the wines themselves carry the memory and the souvenir of that Mm. entire growing season in your glass. And so in the case of the 2018 Pinot Gris that you've got, we had the warmest growing season on record for us, which sounds impressive but remember that we're (laughs) we're down near the icebergs yeah so spring was like summer and it stayed really really warm Mm -hmm. and so by the time we got to within a couple of months of harvest we knew we were going to be picking earlier than we'd ever picked before Mm -hmm. and so i was like oh my god you know we're going to be picking in march what does that even mean? And then I realised that in a northern hemisphere context, that would be the equivalent of picking in in September, yeah, which would be a completely normal harvest in Burgundy. So I was like, okay, ah, right. clearly, clearly, Pinot can grow on this time frame. You know, it's, Calm just, down. it's just us that that are freaking out. But I guess one of the things that translates to that wine is you think, okay, it's going to be this really warm season. But Mm -hmm. on the 1st of February, so a month, you know, just six weeks before we picked the grapes, it snowed on the 1st of February in the hills in the middle Uh, of summer.
0: Yeah. Oh, good fun!
1: <laughs> and there was a frost on the valley floor, which didn't affect us. And the month of February was one of our coldest months of you know summer months on record. So you had the hottest season on paper, but the lead into harvest was actually really, really cool. So what you had yeah. was a vin- a vintage that was really solar and driven by all the sunshine and. So you get mm-hmm. those ripe flavours in the glass. Mm-hmm. But the lead in to actually picking the grapes was really quite cool. And so you have that freshness and vibrancy that mm-hmm. comes from quite a traumatic February where it was cold and cloudy and, and kinda of rainy. So you know all of all of those conditions end up in your glass of wine which is which is pretty cool
0: i think that a lot of people are very much like oh, okay vintage matters in burgundy bordeaux just you know the old world in general because marginal climates things are very tough When we think of the new world, we're like, oh, it's okay. In general, yeah, it's a lot more standard. You don't need to worry as much. New world, winemaking techniques, they're making wines that you can just open up straight away and enjoy. And it sometimes makes things easier. However, I think that that's a great stereotype. But it really is not fair to say for Central Otago with your type of climate, with how extreme it is. I would imagine, and I, I know from tasting different vintages, the vintages really do change and do matter in Central Otago, don't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think because we've now got a lot of experience here as a region, you know, the grapes, mm-hmm. the grapes we always manage to get them ripe. <laughs> so you're not dealing... Thumbs up. You're, you're not, well yeah, done. you're not dealing with truly kind of off-vintages, if you like, where the Pinots are going to be green and vegetal and, you know, the whites aren't going to have any aromatics. Like, the viticulture is tuned in to the point where we can manage our vineyards to achieve ripe, high-quality premium wines every year, but there will be significant vintage variation. So the Mm -hmm. 2018 Pinot Gris is, is really quite different to the 2017. Quality wise, well, like I, buy two. You, know, I'd, you know, like <laughs> if you were scoring them, you'd probably end up scoring them, you know, very similarly, but you wouldn't be saying, Oh yeah, that's clearly in terms of that's clearly the same wine. Mm-hmm. They're very different flavour yeah, profiles. Sure.
0: So I've now got in front of me the Pinot Noir the Home vineyard two thousand and fifteen. So how was two thousand and fifteen as a vintage? For Pinot, and the worst is <laughs> it's probably diff- it's different for Pinot, is it's different for Riesling, it's different. Yeah, for really?
1: absolutely. Um, <sighs> so we're in, in 2018. You had a season that was warm early. We had a warm finish to winter and sort of an, a very early summer, if you like, that that stayed mm-hmm. hot for a long time and with a cool finish and an early mm-hmm. harvest. With 2015, we had quite a mixed spring. You know, there were some late snowfalls in the mm-hmm. hills that cooled things off. And it finally settled down to a, a pretty reasonable sort of a summer mm-hmm. with some fairly decent rainfall at the start of March. But the picking okay. the picking date for Pinot in 2015 was a month later than it was in 2018, the vintage of the Pinot Gris.
0: Right, um,
1: some people really don't So. Um, I mean 2018 was a bit of an anomaly in terms of how early it was but you will get differences Mm -hmm. in picking data of weeks you know uh, um, between seasons and so in 2015 I guess what was interesting about that harvest was normally by the time we get into April which is when the grapes were, mm-hmm. were picked for this one which would be October say in a Burgundy context normally our temperatures are, are getting pretty cool so the day you'll have these lovely blue sky days just pristine sky and no wind with a cold mm-hmm. morning that will be you know under 5 degrees when you go out into the vineyard so it'll be cold uh, which is nice for the fruit it comes into the winery nice and cool and the day will only sort of just scrape up to 20 if you're lucky whereas in 2015 coming into the harvest period we had a little Indian summer where temperatures were actually getting up into the mid-20s consistently for a few weeks there were a couple of little rain days in harvest that didn't really affect us in terms of when we wanted to pick things but it was a vintage that I think of as a little more solar like sometimes in Burgundy they talk about mineral and solar vintages. So you know, okay. have you ha- is your ripeness been driven by sunshine and UV on the fruit, or has it been driven just by time? So in mm. in in a cooler, cloudier vintage, you know, you you'll still get to the finish line if you like, but the journey will just take longer. Whereas in a yeah. solar vintage like 15, you've got lovely sunny skies. And so there's a sort of warmth and a little more spice. I tend to find in the 15.
0: Mm. For me, I think I find it quite savoury and masculine in terms of there's lots of you've got that these lovely cherry notes, but it's lots of even herbs and thyme and there's a bit of wet earth and maybe some crushed leaves. It's autumnal, perhaps I should say for me. I get this. I get an autumnal vibe. Um, I haven't actually tasted it. Wait, wait, wait for that. Now, for me, it's very, it's grippy and it's big and it's full. I mean, you talk about an age-worthy wine. This is not a a flouncy, is that a word? You know, (laughs) this is not a pretty, this is not a pretty pinot that's skipping and dancing down the street. This is pretty robust and it's saying, hey, listen, I'm here for the long term. There's some really grippy but very ripe tannins and it's quite a powerful Pinot darker it's a brooding Pinot Noir for me I, I I love it and actually I can see the yeah if anybody is used to Pinot Noir that's red cherry fruits and lovely and soft and new world yay it's it's not that at all yeah
1: <laughs> yeah I, I don't yeah I don't think anyone's ever
0: Said just De-
1: I <laughs> desc- no, described our Pinot as being a fruit bomb,
0: not at all. They're the complete opposite. Um, it's very impressive. This is a very serious Pinot Noir. Um, the, it, again, I the oak flavors are really in the background. It's it's not very oaky for me. A little bit of spiciness, a little bit of black pepper in there on the finish, but and, and and actually, I think that this wine it'd be interesting. I should decant, I'll decant the rest for, for dinner. For sure. I think this will. Absolutely, you know, I've poured this in the glass and it was in a glass for probably about half an hour before you know I've um, drunk it. But I think it will really open up and probably give me so much more. I can tell that actually it probably is a little bit tight. This needs time. This is a this is a big wine.
1: Yeah, it's it's a vineyard that's definitely not scared of getting some oxygen. You know, it does take some air to really open up and you know the florals and so on come out with a little bit of time in the glass or in, or in a decanter. I still decant the 2015. Mm. It's a vineyard that takes a while to unwind and the 2015 so sort of five years on is about when it starts to show its colors for me um, in a really, in a more open and sort of engaging way.
0: Yeah. So you, you said you're playing the long game. These are wines that are not necessarily. Obviously, of course, you can open them up when they're released, but it, these are wines that really can age. And so very much like in France, some of the best wines, when they talk about amazing vintages as well, you need to wait 10 years and then you're going to really see them giving you, you know, in their glory, right?
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. We try and hold the wines back and sort of release them with a bit of bottle age on them. But, you know, collectively, Will certainly be be rewarded. Yeah, it's it's interesting your comments. I I, I tend not to think of it. I guess you know I'm um, I've been here a long time as being a sort of a big you know a big masculine Pinot or something. Um, the site mm-hmm. itself, because of this elevation, you're up at 400 metres, is right on the edge of where you can grow grapes in our region. It starts to get pretty, mm-hmm. a bit too cold higher than that. And the soil is interesting. It's an ancient glacial terrace that was carved out Mm. a long time ago. And the the schist rock, which is the parent material of the region, has been weathered down to clay and chalk. And it's that chalk in the soil that gives it that drying, slightly sort of grippy tannin profile. It's not from... Wine making, it really is a character of that site. In fact, you know, my journey with that vineyard has been really interesting where I've progressively eliminated all the elements of winemaking input that I thought took the wines away from the vineyard. Mm-hmm. And so obviously there, uh, indigenous yeast, wild fermentation. Very early on, I eliminated uh, using the stems or whole bunches in the ferment because... At our elevation on our site, it gave a pronounced flavour, which was nothing f- for me to do with the terroir. It was really a winemaking input and stood apart from the wine. Mm-hmm. So I got rid of a whole bunch, so it's all destemmed. And I guess the biggest journey was I ended up essentially eliminating extraction. So that, okay. that wine was only hand-plunged once for the whole time. It was in tank oh for my gosh, fermentation. Wow. So essentially no extraction and yet it has all that structure.
0: Yeah, the color is, I mean, obviously it's, you know, we're not expecting something that's really, really deep, but it is exactly how I would expect a standard, you know, in terms of color and concentration, to, to be so, the fact that you're doing, you know, you said one one hand punch down and no pumping overs and no wow, okay, impressive. That just shows how terroir really can make an effect,
1: right? Yeah, it's one of the amazing things about Pinot Noir is it will give you this wonderful expression of place mm-hmm. without plunging it and extracting the hell out of the wine and the winery, or having to add tons of tons of oak or. Stems and trying yeah. to sort of manufacture something, if you really step back, what it revealed to me as I made that shift was you suddenly had the natural tannin profile of the vineyard, which was so much more elegant and beautiful than what I was constructing in the winery with my clumsy sure. winemaking. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Come on, stop it. I mean, so just for anyone to know, this is actually kind of the the flagship Pinot Noir. Anyone again in the UK, I can say it's about £30 a bottle. You make some other Pinot Noirs. Now, you make a wine with Francois Millet.
1: Uh, yeah, that's correct.
0: Did you go to Chambord moussigny For anyone, Chambord moussigny is an amazing place in Burgundy. Did you go there and do some vintages or work with Domaine Comte Georges de Vogue? Am I right? No, or? no,
1: that's correct. I got invited to work uh, vintage there in 2009
0: that's pretty special yeah right? and
1: Chamboir is yeah uh, amazing yeah for me that's the just the mm-hmm. the global epicenter of, of Pinot. <laughs> and absolutely. Um, to work at de Vogue this domain that's been around since the 1400s was just absolutely amazing mm-hmm. and another formative experience in France and Francois and I, You know, really connected and discovered, you know, I'd never met him before, that we had all these common points in terms of our winemaking philosophy and approach and sort of funny, weird things too where... Walking into the barrel cellar there, it turned out we mm-hmm. used the same barrels.
0: Oh, really? Like the same
1: cooperage, the same forest, uh-huh. and the same toast level. <laughs> which was Oh, you, which, was, you
0: were wine soulmates.
1: Which was kind of odd, even though neither of us think mm-hmm. that New Oak is like a really crucial part of Top Pinot. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, we connected in terms of our approach. When you look at his wines in Chambault, and he's also making wines with his For himself with his family um, at home as well, what you see is the most transparent lens on the vineyard you can imagine. Like the wine clearly can only be from a place. It's not from a a person or a winery. And um, Mm. I just absolutely loved working there. And his son came and worked, uh, Julien, came and worked with me in Central Otago in 2013. And ended up staying Mm. in Central Otago for a year and a half. So during that time, Francois and Michel came out to visit a couple of times and stayed up at the vineyard. And, you know, Francois really liked the wines, he really loved our vineyard. And so I sort of cheekily suggested that if he liked it so much, he he should really (laughs) come and make some and to my so sur- put your money where your mouth yeah is. well and 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 to my surprise um you know he said yeah that would that would be really interesting that amazing. would be really interesting and so we came up with this collaboration
0: and this is called can you pronounce it is it cuvee oh uh, yeah C-
1: cu- cuvee cuve- or you know, you, yeah, I you wondered can if you call were it, like putting it with a French. You can call it. An, you, yeah, you can call it Antipodes. <laughs> I don't mind. Um, I wasn't sure but, if you were going I imagine it would have the
0: French <laughs> the French way. That's why I wanted to see how you say And are you both, between the two of you, the collaboration you make in the Pinot Noir and also a white? Because I know you have the Blanc version as well.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. So with those, those two wines, so Francois comes out. Um, He comes out at least twice a year. Obviously, that's Mm -hmm. been a little more difficult this season, uh, Mm -hmm. thanks to... Global pandemics and things, but he will come out at least twice, basically with the Pinot and the Chardonnay or the Cuvier aux Antipode Blanc. You know, I really wanted it to be his vision to really just facilitate Francois making his expression mm. of Central Otago Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from for from sure. our sites.
0: I think that's so exciting. Oh,
1: absolutely, and fascinating for me to see. Someone else's interpretation and winemaking of fruit that I've made every vintage, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, no, for sure. It, it's like, it would be like having a guest chef in the kitchen using the same ingredients, making the same menu, but you know that it's going to be different. You know, there, there's so much nuance to winemaking where even if our philosophies are quite similar, you're going to have different wines.
0: I just think it's amazing Paul you make stunning wines I've tasted so many of them so well not all of them feel free to send me the most expensive ones uh, that's fine um, <laughs> but I have to say for anybody who hasn't tasted any of Profits Rock they really are sensational wines Central Otago offers something pretty special but it's a very different area so people should really get involved but there's so much more we could go into but I just think thank you it's so interesting just explaining your journey it's got me excited I'm so glad I have the rest of the bottles too to drink <laughs>
1: <laughs> no perfect thank thanks for having me I'm always happy to to chat about this region it's been remarkable for me to I guess have chased those wines around the world but to have ended up somewhere that I connect with as strongly and that is beautiful as Central Otago oh, yeah. being able to make the wines that I'm making is just an amazing place to have ended up my pretty happy here
0: well we're happy that you're making those wines so thank you so much for joining us today and and i guess good night i'm gonna start my day and uh (laughs) sleep well
1: you have have a good day
0: you you have a good night (laughs) take care bye
1: cheers (laughs)
0: So seeing as Pinot Noir really is the king grape variety of Central Otago, I will finish off with a nice wine quote about this grape variety. Now, sadly, it's from Rex Pickett, who is an American novelist, not New Zealand. My apologies. Um, But he is most famous for the novel and the film Sideways. So this is a very interesting wine film if you haven't checked it out. So go and have a look at that. Now, he says, Pinot Noir country, my grape the one varietal that truly enchants me, both stills and steals my heart with its elusive loveliness and false promises of transcendence. I loved her and I would continue to follow her siren call until my wallet or liver, whichever came first, gave out. (laughs) How many of you would agree with that? So as I always say, guys, if you haven't subscribed, if you haven't commented, shared, all these kind of things, it really does help the podcast become more discoverable. And for all of you who cannot get enough of all the action, please go to patreon.com slash eatsleepwinerepeat where you can become a Patreon member of this podcast and listen to exclusive episodes just for you. So yes, more my voice and more wine knowledge. <laughs> so until the next episode... Cheers to you.